Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. On 30th of June 2019, Donald Trump became the first serving US president to step into North Korea. Heavy on symbolism, the meeting with Kim Jong-un suggested a renewed imperatus towards easing nuclear tensions. Here to discuss United States and North Korean relations is Professor Gordon Flake, founding CEO of the Perth US Asia Center in Western Australia. Thank you for joining me, Gordon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So after initial steps and summits in Singapore and Hanoi, progress seems to have eased off a bit. But having Trump cross the border into North Korea, while heavy on symbolism, is something that you wouldn't really think would have happened, say, about 18 months ago. So what's your assessment of the, the current place that we're at with U.S. relations with North Korea? Well, on the most basic level, it is certainly better to be in a situation where we're not at conflict. There was a time in late 2017, early 2018, when it seemed like conflict between the United States and North Korea was inevitable. You yeah. may recall that President Trump was threatening fire and fury such as the world has never known. Mm. And more importantly, the people around the president were sufficiently concerned by successful North Korean nuclear tests, successful tests of long-range ballistic missiles, that their view was that those developments now post an unacceptable threat to the United States mainland. Yep. And so there was a feeling, particularly in, in late 2017, early 2018, that the U.S. was looking for an opportunity to strike North Korea. At the time, the, the reporting suggested that it was a bloody nose strategy. Some suggested it was more akin to a decapitation strategy. It really seemed we were on the cusp of war. And that was before the outbreak of both North-South diplomacy with the Winter Olympics, the North-South summit between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and the uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which ultimately led to Singapore and then Hanoi and then, of course, the president stepping across the border on the DMZ. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there was more to that occurrence than symbolism and a photo op? Do you think that this is actually on the right track? I would like to believe so. Unfortunately, I think what we haven't seen is any fundamental change in North Korean behavior. What we have seen is some rather capricious shifts in approach from the United States uh, that are much more tied to the president himself than to any longer-term strategy. The fundamental concern about North Korea for the last 20 years has been the development of their nuclear program, of their missile program, their ability to threaten not just the region but the world more broadly. And the fact that from an Australian perspective, North Korea was violating what we would call the rules-based order when it comes to security the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the only country in history to ever withdraw from that treaty, the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA Safeguards Agreement, which they signed and abrogated six different sets of UN Security Council sanctions resolutions against North Korea, none of which they've reversed. So they continue to produce both missiles, they continue to test missiles, and they continue to have uh, a nuclear program. And yet the tone, again, has shifted away from conflict, which is a good thing, what it hasn't shifted towards is any suggestion of a resolution of those fundamental problems. Mm. You know, instead, what we've had is an awful lot of pageantry 
in Singapore and Hanoi and then in the DMZ, which hasn't led to results on the part of North Korea. That's yeah. the problem. Okay, so nothing beyond the positive optics, really. Positive optics means, you know, no war. So again, jaw jaw is better than war war. We get that. Mm. But the problem is the reason we were on the cusp of war too was because of a different type of jaw jaw mm. early in the administration. Uh, one is not overly inclined to give a fire, fighter's medal to an arsonist, someone who started the problem in the first place. The more concerning problem is that the way the Trump administration and the president in particular has approached this problem has actually served to undermine the international effort to roll back the North Korean nuclear missile programs. Mm, So, mm. for example, at the Singapore summit in in 2018, the president agreed to and announced a a four-point agreement with the North Koreans, every point of which had been previously agreed to with North Korea with a greater level of vigor uh, and requirements, every one of which represented a step back towards a North Korean position and undermined international cooperation. And that's continued. And so even in the last two weeks, you've seen the president respond to undeniably provocative missile tests, which were indeed ballistic, which were unquestionably in violation of its international obligations, including Security Council resolutions, by shrugging his soldiers and saying, I've got a wonderful letter. And so the North Koreans it, are basically... Wait, wait, wait. It included a small apology well, to the letter. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, uh, a, a point where the president has completely bought into the North Korean rhetoric about what are essential military training exercises between allies, the United States and South Korea, calling them expensive and provocative. So we're at a situation right now where the commander-in-chief of the United States is regularly criticizing his own military strategy mm. on the peninsula. And so if you think about this from a military perspective, and we've been doing this you know, for 60 years now, the notion that a readiness exercise, a military exercise is provocative, we've been doing it for 60 years, is entirely 100% North Korean propaganda. But the fact that the president focuses just on the cost and uses North Korean terminology to describe it, when if you're looking at it from the perspective of a military commander, it would be criminally negligent not to make sure that your troops in the field who are putting their lives in harm's way had the best of training, the best of capability, the best of preparedness. Mm. And yet we're in this environment where a letter seems to be able to upend all of that. So what the U.S. would normally want out of it ultimately would be complete denuclearization from the North Korean side. What the North Korean side seems to be gaining is concessions, deal sweeteners as more of these meetings go on. The longer negotiations take, the more of a kind of benefit the North Korean side is getting. Is that about right? Here's a very important distinction where words matter. The president came out of of the Singapore summit in, in 2018 telling the world that peace was at hand, that the North Koreans had agreed to denuclearization, that he'd accomplished this great thing that nobody else had ever been done before. When those of us who had been following this for a long time saw very clearly that what instead happened was that the president adopted the North Korean terminology. So we have long referred to denuclearization in, in very specific terms return to North Korea's obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty like they signed, or even more specifically, return to their commitment, again signed, on the September 19, 2005 joint statement of the six-party talks, where with Russia, China, South Korea, Japan, and the United States, North Korea committed to abandon all nuclear weapons and all existing nuclear programs Mm. unilaterally. Instead, the president says, well, I don't really care about words. The North Koreans want denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. They have committed to denuclearize. But the North Koreans have been explicit about what they mean 
by denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That means that they are a peer nuclear power with the United States, that they want to denuclearize the peninsula, meaning end of the alliance with the United States, removal of U.S. troops from the peninsula, more importantly, removal of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And by nuclear umbrella, I mean extended nuclear deterrence. The fact that allies like Australia and Japan and, and South Korea have agreed not to develop their own nuclear weapons is in part due because the United States extended its own nuclear capabilities to protect them. Mm. North Koreans are saying that umbrella has to be removed. Otherwise, that's not denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. And then eventually, one day in the future, as peer nuclear powers, North Korea and the United States will agree to a mutual disarmament along with Russia and Great Britain and the UK, which is exactly the opposite of what we keep being told out of the White House the North Koreans have agreed to. Is that a misunderstanding from Donald Trump or is he rethinking what he means by denuclearization? Because I, I'd be very surprised if he agreed to that, but you say he's it, it using is a, their terms. It is a willful misunderstanding by the president and those immediately around him. I'm not aware of anyone in Washington, D.C. among the circle of Korea scholars, nuclear nonproliferation specialists, the intelligence community, diplomats that believe that North Korea and Singapore or Hanoi or on the DMZ have committed to unilateral disarmament, mm. have committed to denuclearization in the terms that we have used. Instead, they continue to make it very clear that they've got a long list of demands along the way and all the while continue to test missiles and to continue to work on their nuclear technology, which is exactly why you've seen over the intervening 18 months the intelligence community regularly leak to say, look, North Korea is continuing with its programs. They haven't stopped them. Peace is not at hand. So really, this is a situation where, you know, the president having declared victory, greatly enjoyed the intention and the pageantry mm -hmm. is keeping that going. But the underlying problem, in fact, rather than being solved, has gotten worse. Because in the process, we now have shattered the international coalition that was working together to put pressure on North Korea. We have completely ignored the growing body of international law and precedents that formed the international response to North Korea's attempted nuclear breakout. You know, and again, all you know, for a little bit of flattery and a couple nice letters and the ability to declare victory. Mm -hmm. So what is North Korea getting out of this then in the short term? What sweeteners, what concessions are they after from continuing so, this engagement? Some would say the United States has yet to ease sanctions, which is what North Korea really wants. I actually think they've got something that's far more important than easing U.S. sanctions because in a world of limited capital, the notion that removing U.S. sanctions is going to lead to a lot of U.S. investment into North Korea is fanciful to begin with. Uh, the more important thing that has happened is that by shadowing the U.S. own sanctions effort and the coalition, they basically opened the door for Russia and China to provide considerable assistance to North Korea, even in violation of existing sanctions, because at this point, the president doesn't care. Mm. North Korea, again, just look at the last two weeks alone, continues to take actions, missile tests in particular, ballistic missile tests, which are in violation of the UN Security Council sanctions and to suffer no consequences for it. Again, continuing aid and assistance from South Korea in that same basic vein, or at least the offer of it from South Korea. Mm. So that's what they've got out of it. And the key thing they've got is legitimacy. At the start of the Trump administration, North Korea was rightly one of the world's worst human rights abusers, a country that is a serial proliferator of technology, a country that had, again, violated the from an Australian perspective, the international rules-based order not just violated it, it shattered it internationally. 
and was rightly a pariah. Mm. And now they've not only been feted by Donald Trump three times, but with that green light, with Xi Jinping, with Putin, with Moon Jae-in twice now at this point, you know, even to the point where Japan is thinking at some point to protect their interests, don't they have to get in this age? So there's a level of uh, patina of respectability that comes in that, which means the human rights issues are not being addressed. You know, the fundamental issues which were the rationale for the UN Security Council sanctions resolutions have not been addressed. They've gotten worse, and yet the response has been weakened. So that's what they've got out of it. Mm. I'd like to know what you think these developments mean for the Indo-Pacific region then. I feel like there would be a lot of countries looking at these sort of developments and activities and going, oh, maybe we should think about developing nuclear weapons of our own, for example. There's long been this, this rationale that North Korea is a nuclear weapon state. They have successfully tested a nuclear weapon now. Why don't we just recognize reality on the ground and state what everybody knows to be true, that North Korea is a nuclear power? That sounds simple. It sounds easy. But your question highlights precisely the problems in that particular approach. Because while it is true they've tested nuclear weapons, they're not yet accepted by the international community as a nuclear weapon state. Because candidly, you could look around the region or the globe more broadly, and you would be hard-pressed to find any state that would not be relatively more acceptable to the international community as a nuclear weapon state than North Korea. Mm. Yeah, and so if North Korea can do it, who can't? The real concern for a country like Australia, and again, I'm one who firmly believes that as much as we tend to focus on our own very capable defense forces in Australia— and our very important alliance relationship with the United States, there is a second pillar of Australia's national security strategy, and that is the often referred to rules-based order. And that's not just economics, that's security. That is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That is the missile technology control regime, you know, comprehensive test bans regimes. Those are the things that on the security realm, a country like Australia, which is economically, scientifically, technologically, diplomatically, in every way more advanced than North Korea, has made a conscious decision not to develop its own missiles or nuclear weapons, but instead to rely not just on the United States, but on the rules-based order. And if North Korea breaks out and is rewarded for it, despite the UN Security Council sanctions resolution, why not Japan? Especially if Japan is convinced that the U.S. won't come to their aid. Yeah, fair yeah, Which thing, is, again, yeah. a fair thing these days, right? Yeah. Why not Korea? Why not Taiwan? If it's Taiwan, why not Vietnam? Why not the Philippines? Why not Indonesia? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you began to see this is not the type of world we want to live in, which is precisely why we had the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in the first place and why it's so important not just to blithely say, ah, oh, they've already accomplished it. Let's just let's accept reality as for what it is. Now that we've gone down the Trump diplomacy route and the situation has moved on to where it is now, I kind of want to ask you how you think it's going to develop from this point. But I also want to know if you think that we'd be better off without the Trump diplomacy or if now that we've gone down this path and in this engagement with North Korea, then it's got to continue. Probably 20 years ago, a very close friend of mine and the best Korea analyst that I know, Scott Snyder, who runs the Korea program at the Council on Foreign Relations in in Washington, D.C., described it this way. He said, there's a fundamental imbalance in the U.S.-North Korea relationship. The level of sustained, top-level, high-level attention that North Korea will require in order to get the assurances needed 
to open, reform, abandon its nuclear and other ambitions mm. is impossible for the United States to give. And for decades now, there have been people that have been assuming that given the nature of the top-down leadership in North Korea, that if we really wanted to ever get things done, we could never negotiate them bottom-up. We had to start at the top. We've got that with an incredible lack of attention or interest in any of the details. And so had this been a Clinton or a Bush or an Obama, when there were specific objectives, when there was attention given to the actual agreement or the implications, rather than you know the placement of the flags and the photo ops, one might think that there was potential there. The problem is, and this is where my real concern lies, I think the broader security community in Washington, D.C., outside of the president and his enabler on this particular issue, the Secretary of State, I don't know of anybody who actually believes, one, that North Korea is committed to denuclearization in mm. Singapore or that we're moving in that direction. You know, and so the worry is that post-Trump, whenever that may be, there will be a snapback that those people in the intelligence community, in the security community, will full well know that we've been duped, right? They believe that currently right now, and the consequences then will snap back. And in that context where there's a snapback, we will no longer have a diplomatic option. Yeah. Because we've already gone to the very top, and we've given them everything very top. And in nowhere and in no scenario did North Korea express any willingness to abandon their nuclear weapons. But yeah. do you think uh, Kim Jong-un, he must surely realize that. He must surely realize that this attention is only going to be here for as long as there is a Trump. I have a hard time knowing exactly what Kim Jong-un's long-term strategy is. It's pretty clear to me that at least in the short run, he's looking to weaken the U.S.-ROK alliance. Mm. He's looking to weaken U.S.-Japan relations. And I think he's had some success on both those fronts. He's looking to break out of the concerted international pressure that was on him at the end of the Obama administration and that candidly was on him in the first six months to a year of the Trump administration, where, again, one of the areas where I scrambling to find something positive to say in 2017 gave early credit to the Trump administration was, again, aside from the fire and fury rhetoric, was that they were working really closely with the international community to make sure that there were consequences for violating international obligations and UN Security Council sanctions resolutions. Mm -hmm. So they were doing a really good job. The fact that that's now squandered means that Kim Jong-un has kind of got what he wanted, right? He's getting the economic development. So North Korea made it clear beginning about five years ago that they wanted to pursue an era where they could do both economic development and be a nuclear power at the same time. And the challenge was how you prevented that, right? How did you prevent the legitimization of their nuclear status? It's not easy. It's certainly not easy. Is certainly less easy now and more difficult in the future, which means that, again, absent that diplomatic option, I think we're in a scenario where both in the United States and in South Korea post Moon Jae-in, you know, President Moon in South Korea has given everything to North Korea and has been very poorly treated by the North Koreans in terms of their rhetoric and response. So I think you can see a snap back there as well. Yeah. So is there anything that you think that the international community should be doing then to almost triage the situation? The real challenge of this is because it is now so intertwined with the broader U.S.-China relationship, mm. with the trade war, with the broader deterioration of U.S.-Russia relations. It's difficult for me to see how this plays out, except for in, in 
old school way, right? And more of a kind of a Cold War era way. And one of the areas where I'm actually sympathetic to the South Koreans is there is a very legitimate concern on their part that this was the window of opportunity. And if they don't affect some type of, of reunification now, mm. that you know, it won't be long before North Korea is just a vassal Chinese state. That, to be honest, to me, seems to be the more likely scenario where North Korea, rather than being the recipient of actual pressure from China, and again, we shouldn't undermine or understate the importance of the fact that China signed on to UN Security Council sanctions, something that it hates, yeah. you know, against one of its treaty allies. Mm. Uh, and so the fact that we've squandered that is an important thing. Traditionally, cooperation on North Korea was an area of close cooperation between the U.S. and China. That was a high point of the relationship. That's no longer there. I'm scrambling for kind of a positive good case scenario. Uh, for a country like Australia, we're in a particularly difficult situation. And again, we don't even have to talk about purchasing Greenland and NATO to recognize that if our two-pronged security strategy is reliance upon the United States and reliance upon the rules-based order, when it is our principal ally, the United States, that is at least in some respects jeopardizing the rules-based order, that becomes problematic. Mm. This issue in particular is deeply intertwined and interrelated to the broader geopolitical challenges we're facing every day. Professor Gordon Flake, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple iTunes or wherever you may find your podcasts. You can follow Gordon Flake on Twitter. He's at LG Flake. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>